You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. This message here, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the wedding at Cana, I am entitling John chapter two. Uh, uh, the wedding at Cana is God's time, not man's time. God's time, God's time, and you want to be on God's economy. Yes, yes, you do, and you want to be doing things according to God's purpose. Yes, and so you want God's time, not man's time. And many of us have lived on man's time. And it doesn't work out very well. And it comes with a lot of extra sauce that you don't want to be taking, right? It comes with things. And you don't want any part of that. You want to be on God's time, not man's time. Wedding at Cana. Verse 1, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come now. We ask that you would speak by the power of the Holy Spirit unto your church and unto your people. And God, that by all manner, Lord God, that we would come to know you this day. And that we'd grow, Lord God, we would grow in Christ this day. And so we pray these things, God, that you would speak to our hearts, which need you so desperately. Come now at this very moment, God, we pray, and fill us with the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. amen. Okay, so here's how we're going to ramp up in this text. Again, we're talking about the great verses of the Bible, which we'll get to sort of looking at that in just a moment. But it's in the context of a story as it's related to Jesus. So it'd be correct for us to talk about this. I'm calling God's time, not man's time. God's timing and time are everything. So if you go through life, you begin to realize there's a really important concept out there, whether you're a Christ follower or not, and that is timing. And God's timing is very, very real, very, very unique. And so there are certain elements, though, which promote God's time. Those are things that you're going to nurture and nurture. Things like God's glory in your life, celebrating God's life and having faith. Those are virtues that you actually nurture in order to be on God's time. And uh, timing's really, really, really big. I think about, I think about King David. And I think about this phrase. We're talking about it on Tuesday night. On Tuesday night, we have a Bible study right over there. And we get there, it's 5.30, and we actually enjoy a meal together. All of you are invited. So if you all come, I guess I'll feed all of you. And uh, so that's at 5.30, and then we're going through every chapter in the book. And we're making our way to 2 Kings. So we've actually read and studied the life of David. David has this refrain. I've used it on Sundays before, so you'll hear this, you'll know this, but it's worth repeating. Don't, don't run past this. Don't run past this like flag waving right in your face. And it's simply this, that David, the text says, sought the Lord. Right? Amen? He sought the Lord. And so what you see in the stories is David sought the Lord. It'll say that. It'll say that, that very line. It says, and then David sought the Lord. And then there's some difficulty in his life. There's some challenge in his life. There's some hardship in his life. And it says, and David sought the Lord. And you know what comes after that? We would have to use the word awesome. Like just some glory from God that was awesome. I mean, God did something. And that's what you need to know. God did something. So does God need to do that something in your life? Well, then be seeking the Lord. 
be on his time and economy that way. Now, what's fascinating with David, and stay with me on this, so, so, now, so now as you go into David's life and you get into you know, parts of, of Kings and Chronicles, which are not speaking about David's life, and it'll say, it'll say well, David, and then he's confronted with uh, some anxiety, some hardship, some challenge. You know what's not there in the next line? It's just absent. He didn't seek the Lord. It's just absent. It doesn't say anything. Doesn't condemn him that way. It's just saying David before was seeking the Lord and seeking the Lord and seeking the Lord. And now he has again as a man who has practiced and spiritual disciplines of seeking the Lord and seeing God's victory and God's fruit. Now he's pressed up against another difficulty. And guess what? He's not seeking the Lord. And it didn't go well. <laughs> It went bad. It went really bad. That's how we get ultimately to the sins of Bathsheba. But I want to just share this about seeking the Lord. Now listen, when David sought the Lord, and this is related to being on God's time and not man's time, as we're going to read the rest of the story in a moment, but here's what I want you to understand. Do not over-idolize that. In other words, Jesus Christ, he batted a thousand. He was on God's time. Always, always right with God. Always, that's true of a thousand. And then he batted a thousand. And so, and so David sought the Lord, but in seeking the Lord, where did he end up? In caves. Okay, he sought the Lord. Where did he end up? Attacked. He sought the Lord. Where did he end up? Misunderstood. Where did he end up? He ended up opposed. He ended up with another trial and another challenge. So don't over-idolize. Some of us think, okay, I'm seeking the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord. Why do I have another hardship? You know why you have another hardship? Because God has another victory. Right? He, he, has, he has another glory. And he's going to grow you. And you're saying, I don't really feel like growing. Oh, well. <laughs> you're going to grow. You're going to grow in ways that you did not understand. So there are, though, to all of this, by way of introduction, I know I'm taking some time to set this up because we're kind of dropping in on John as we're going through great verses, and it doesn't relate necessarily to the prior message in the most direct manner. But, but these, are, these are the virtues of God's timing, God's glory. Everybody say glory. glory. Okay, here's the second one, celebration. Everybody say celebration. celebration. Okay, it's got a third for you, and it's faith. Everybody say faith. Okay, great. Thank you for cooperating. So glory, celebration, and faith. You're going to see that in the text. There are two kind of like daggers, which, which we sort of harm ourselves, and they work against everything beautiful that God's doing. And here's the first one. I'm not going to make you say it out loud because it's selfishness. Yeah. I don't get a lot of amens when I say that. I get like a lot of ooh. And the second one is self-imposed slavery, which I'll spend a good bit of talking about how, how that works. And so, so let's, let's, get after, let's get after this as we, as we work through it. Okay, so verse one now is I'm gonna work through these verses. So this says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Cana is in Israel. It's in the northern part of the country and it says they're Galilee. So if you don't know much about the geography, the topography, just know it's outside of Jerusalem. It's in the northern part of uh, the country. And I'll take you guys there soon enough. Um, so that's Cana. And the mother of Jesus was there. And you need to know that because she's going to come into picture here, verse 2. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and his disciples. Okay, so if you're getting married, here's a really good idea. 
invite Jesus to the wedding. All right? Let me give you a better idea. Invite Jesus into that marriage. Right there, right? I gave you that handbook, which is called Jesus at the Center. Put Jesus at the center of your marriage. And you're going to like it. Because God will do some things. And so, so Jesus is invited here. And Jesus was there. So verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, that's a fascinating dialogue here because we, we actually get to see Jesus' relationship with his mom. Jesus' public ministry has not come out. It's not his time. It's not his day. It's not his moment. But his mama knows. As she knows. She knows the things that God has told her about her son. She's seen him even though he was just a boy. But she knows. And so she doesn't tell him. She just says, I have no wine. Now, I laugh about that because that's sort of like the implication of a mom to a son or a daughter, right? Like, so she didn't ask him. She simply said, there's a problem, right? I have no wine, right? She didn't tell him what to do. But look at the response because you could see. You could see right there. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, ha, <laughs> What does this have to do with me? Which is better than him saying, what does it have to do with you, right? He says, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So his mother said to the servants, right? Because Jesus hasn't done anything and they're really not clued into this. Mother-son conversation. Do whatever he tells you. Always smart. Always smart. You can underline that verse. Tap it in your digital device for today. Whatever Jesus tells me to do, do that. All right, let's, let's chase a fascinating con concept here that's in verse one called the third day. So, so this is really interesting. It says, so on the third day, there was a wedding. Okay, that's a really, why, why is that in the text there? That's really fascinating. So one thing you need to know is that the Sabbath, just an easy way to do the math on this, just consider the Sabbath as Saturday. It's really Friday, sundown, or Saturday, sun, but just, just say Saturday, okay? That's, that's the Sabbath day. So the first day of the week on this Jewish way of thinking is Sunday. Everybody say yes. yes. Thank you. That was not good, but we'll keep going. So then Tuesday is the second, uh, excuse me, Monday's the second day. And Tuesday's the third day. So what day of the week are we having the wedding? Tuesday. Tuesday. When did you get married, probably? Right? Probably got, you know, for us, like Saturday, Sunday, Friday, you know? So this is during their work week. All right, but you got to not think about that because, because we... Well, this is kind of changing a little bit amongst, you know, a younger generation. I know when my wife and I got married... You know, we got married that day, you know, and it's all the drama of the weekend. We actually got married on a Sunday because the venue was basically cheaper, free to us. And so we said, we'll do it since we have no money. We're getting married now on Sunday, right? And so, but, but in this context, no one's working that week. I mean, you have to think about, think about just here. We all live in San Inez Valley. We're here basically in Solvang. And imagine, imagine if the wedding was down in Ventura, Oh, how are we getting in the ancient world down to Ventura? You're walking. Or maybe you're on an animal. Maybe you're on a cart. In other words, you're not driving the car. It's not going fast. We don't have Teslas in, right? So it's, you know, we're, we're, we're going slow. So you're going to walk all the way down to Ventura. 
You're going to enjoy the celebration. You're not coming home the next day. Well, that family's going to take care of you. They're going to feed you. And you don't want to come home the next day. <laughs> this is going to be a week-long celebration over many days. So, of course, you're going to honor the Sabbath. You're not walking on that day. And then now, now you're going to take, take the first day of the week, the second day of the week. You're going to get there on Tuesday. And then now we're going to have a, now we're going to have a wedding. And now we're going to enjoy this for a couple of days. I'm going to give you a reference, though, to something that's very interesting related to the third day. And this is a reference that's going to find its way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 19 and uh, verse, uh, verse 16. And this is, this is right before the Ten Commandments. And I want you just to hear these few verses of Exodus 19, 16 as it's related to the third day. Because God tends to do things on the third day. Very fascinating. So on the morning of the third day, again, I'm in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, lightning, thick clouds, and mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're at Sinai here. That's the context. Right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it is one, two, three, the third day. God is beginning in the Bible, in the context here of the text, to begin to tip hands as it's going to relate ultimately to the resurrection, that the third day had some great significance. And so, so there were things for them to know. So here it is on the third day. And we have third day theology in terms of the Bible ultimately relates to Jesus being resurrected on the third day. Well, now we're going to talk about wine. Don't raise your hand if you're a wine drinker. Because that would be all of you. I'm quite confident if I said, how many of you guys are wine drinkers? Oh, Pastor, I drink lots of wine. I didn't ask you if you drink lots of wine. I asked you to drink wine. I know you drink lots of wine. Let's talk about wine. This is your pastor. This is me. Okay, you got that? This is not the biblical text. Not the biblical text. If you understand what I'm saying, raise your hand. Okay, thank you. This is me. This is me. I want you to hear this. I want you to know it. I wish, literally to God, that none of you ever drank alcohol or wine ever. Never. I wish it never was there. It's not sin for you to do that, the Bible says. Right? The Bible says, in a paraphrase, uh, again, don't, don't get drunk on it. You get drunk on it. You drink too much. But I wish you never touch this stuff. Every social statistic, every psychological statistic, uh, everything that we have seen throughout every single kind of culture, including the modern world, says that there are such a gross, lengthy amount of sins because people drink too much. Most sexual assault revolves around alcohol or alcoholism of every age. So just think about that. If we didn't drink, we could do away with that terror. So that is me. Okay, you understand that's Pastor Rick Soto, right? Obviously, God feels a little different about that because he just turned water into real wine. So the debate is, did Jesus turn water into real wine? The answer is yes. Yes, because you don't get a really good taste, as is bragged about here, 
without some degree of alcohol. Now, that alcohol content is not like our modern-day alcohol, so don't, don't think that. You get a bottle, you look at it, and it can have a really aggressive alcohol content. This was fermented, and it was probably somewhere in the 2 to 4% range or something like that. Jesus turned water into wine, and they did it for a good celebration. Jesus only did this once, and it was in the correct context, of course. So Jesus tells his mom, my time has not yet come, yet he's going to honor a need at the moment, and therefore he does it. And so now we're going to read on to verse 6. So now there were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, uh, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now I'm in the English Standard Version, and so the math is kind of done for you. You'll have other versions potentially that you might be reading from. Uh, the English Standard Version is a literal translation of the Bible. Here, they actually just made that a little easier and user-friendly for us. So verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So we have these jars, and now we're going to fill them with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, here's a good comment. If Jesus tells you to do something, like fill it with water, don't fill it halfway. <laughs> fill it all the way. You know, so if Jesus is going to say, hey, I'm going to bless your life and I want you to do X, well, do that all the way. Like, don't take half the blessing. Take all of the blessing, you know? And so this is what they're going to, that's what, he's, that's what they're doing here. So they fill it up to the brim. So draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So he turns this water into wine. So the math is done for you. This is basically 120 or 180 gallons of wine, and if that doesn't work for you, that would either be 60 cases of wine or 90 cases of wine. That so we've got a larger celebration, we've got a good family celebration, and they're going to be around for the week. Jesus turned this water into wine. He did a unique blessing because he just wanted to bless people and he wanted to love on them. The virtues of God's timing glory, as it says here in the text, and celebration and faith. And you want to nurture that. You want to be in a place where you say, I'm going to do this for God's glory. I want God to be glorified. I want God to be honored. If you don't know what the word glory means, and just think about the word honor. You want to raise your hand before God. You want to get on your knees at home, and you want to say, God, how am I going to honor you this moment? How am I going to honor you with this circumstance, this challenge, and this hardship? And may you actually get all of the glory, all of the praise. And God's timing will begin to work wonders. So celebration's really interesting. You know, we're here at a wedding, wedding at Cana, and let me tell you that when everybody came to the wedding, not everybody was having a good day. Not everybody's seasons in life was beautiful and wonderful. Some people probably had various kinds of hardships going on. Maybe even the young couple. And yet they came to celebrate. 
And so what we tend to do as people is we tend, when we feel sad and when we're brokenhearted and, and, and distressed, we tend to pull back and, and we, don't, we don't allow ourselves to participate in celebrations. We somehow think, well, if everybody knew how sad I was, well, we want to know, we want to love on you, but it's also okay in all of our sadness and all of our brokenness, without a doubt, it's good for us to have moments of true, sheer celebration and joy. And that's a blessing. It's like today at our church festival where end of the summer, is everything going perfect in your life and right in your life? Is everything going perfect and right in our culture and all of that? No, the answer is no. But we're going to come today because it's good and right that we actually celebrate and that we cultivate happiness actually cultivate happiness. You have good practices to be happy. And then faith, just related to the, the needs that we have that we're gonna believe and trust God. And so we're gonna be people at peace. You know, faith, when you put it into action, goes like this. You come to God by faith and then you let him and you bring him to bring you peace in your heart so that you by faith will then act on doing the next right thing. That's faith. And bring that peace into your heart. And you're not going to stay there because that peace is going to have supernatural power, but you're going to need to act on it to do the very next right thing. Okay, so let's talk about a few daggers. I'm calling these selfishness and self-imposed slavery. And I want to talk about these daggers. These are like joy killers. So truth, Jesus' truth. So some people really argue against that. You know, so here's Jesus doing this miracle and people will argue about how the miracle was or was it really wine or is this really true? Jesus is truth. Jesus rose from the dead. And I dare anybody listening to me in any context to try and prove to me that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You can't do it. It's academically airtight. Jesus rose from the dead. All they were talking about is whether you're going to believe it or not. We're not talking about whether it's true. We're talking about whether you're going to believe it or not and whether your life will be anchored on that solid rock and experience a continual, victorious power of God which gives him glory and you're blessed. Jesus is truth. So, so here's, here's something I was sharing with somebody recently. They were arguing with me about this and so this sort of popped to mind and sort of got our conversation where I wanted it to go and that, and it's this, Jesus has better resources for everything you're seeking. So that's another good one to write down or tap in your digital device, right? Jesus has better resources for you than everything are you seeking. Okay, so if you're married, raise your hand. Okay, there you go, all right. So who would like a better marriage? Okay, all right, a few of you guys, right? You know, a few guys, go, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to do this to that person right there, right? <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Jesus has better resources for how you want to go about having a better marriage than you ever imagined. You got a better job? Want your finances to work out? Jesus has better resources for your finances working out than you ever imagined. Most of that's related to a fruit of the Spirit called self-control because you cannot be financially prosperous on an ongoing and continual basis if you lack self-control. You want friends? Oh, alpha quiet out there. You want friends? 
Yeah? Yeah? Jesus has better resources for you to be a friend to somebody than you ever do on your own. And on and on it goes. On and on it goes. And so, so you want love, you want identity, you want justice, you want purpose. These are constant phrases in, in, in current culture. Well, Jesus is way ahead of you. He has love for you and better resources for that than you could ever imagine. He has a true, a true identity for you, which comes with liberty that you can never imagine. He has justice for you that you could never imagine. He has purpose for you. Jesus is way ahead of you, way ahead of you. And with someone else I was talking recently, this is coming up because we have the Jesus at the Center Handbook, so it's been fun to use that more and more and put that resource out there. And so I just asked somebody, okay, listen, friend, how are you going to throw off shame and guilt without Jesus Christ? Ah, right? How are you going to do that? You're going to tell me that you don't have shame and guilt? You're going to tell me that that never comes around in your life, that never plagues your life, that's never an issue for your life? Do you have the audacity to tell me that? That's the height of absolute arrogance, by the way. If you don't believe the Bible, then okay, every psychological statistic, every sociological statistic says that human beings in the natural are plagued with shame and guilt. That's why there's a whole cottage industry of books trying to address this without Christ. How are you going to throw off shame and guilt without Jesus Christ? You know what the answer is? You're not. You're not. You're going to need the power of God in order to do that. It's a lie going on in our culture, generally sort of language that plagues people under 40, although it was true of my generation, just somewhat different ways of saying some very simple things like this, but it goes like this. So you can't tell me what is moral. Anybody ever say that to you? Like it's, it's another way. You can't tell me what's right. You can't tell me what's right here. Relationship, dating, money, sex, marriage. You can't tell me what's right here. I can do what I want. I can do what I want. Okay, so, so here's, a, here's this funny and kind of not funny, right? Here's what's funny about that. Let's take that same person. Don't be that person as I'm about to illustrate. But you probably know people like this. Okay, so that same person, that same person is gonna say, you can't tell me, and then fill in the blank, correct? Which basically is what's right and wrong or what's moral, but what are they ultimately gonna do to you over time? They're gonna tell you what is right. Isn't that funny? Not funny. They're gonna tell you what's moral. They're going to claim, no, 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 I accept everybody. I accept everybody. No, 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 I don't have any opinion. I don't. No, they're going to tell you what is right and wrong, but they're not going to accept that in reverse. It's actually a form of secular fundamentalism. It's a sociological term going out there. Right? So some people want to be free to express. They say, I want to be free to express myself and express myself without feeling guilty. But you'll go as a Christ follower and say, well, I'm not making you feel guilty. You know who's making you feel guilty? You, the devil, and God. And only one of those you want in your house. You want God, right? You don't want devil and you don't want your carnality. But really, just think about the phrase, you know, because we're talking about this great celebration here. And this is the Christian life. And why are we not more celebratory? 
Why are we not more animated in our celebrations in, in truly sweet ways? I mean, in our personal lives. You know, walking around with songs in our heart. Walk around with a song in your heart. You know, get a playlist out and worship and walk around with a song in your heart. That's because if you actually believe, and many people and sometimes Christians are deceived this way, if you really believe that you can quote unquote create yourself, well then that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> that's not grace, right? How are you gonna create yourself? Right, you're gonna you're gonna end up doing that in the natural, right? You're gonna, you're gonna and that's a lot of pressure, and God doesn't want that. Let's try and run for home here. How you guys doing? You with me? Yeah. All right, we'll try and run for home here. I want to talk about the truth of slavery, which is just being being in certain forms of bondage, which I partly addressed uh, last week. So when you have to try to invent yourself, you know, like Jesus here, so his mom says they have no wine. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He is rock solid on his identity. I mean, immovable force. So therefore what he's gonna do is out of love and kindness and benevolence, not out of manipulation where so many of our motives get so torn about. And so, so here's the truth of what I'm calling forms of self-slavery. So the truth is, people who say they need to invent themselves and all of that kind of cultural language, they're enslaved to their job. Your job enslaves you. Yes, it does. What you spend your day doing. You're enslaved to your workouts to your figure and your looks, you're enslaved to your bank account. All these are things that can enslave us and do enslave many, many people. And so you can conclude, you can conclude like some do, I need another spouse. Uh, I need another job, I need another trainer, I need another friends, I need a vacation. Okay, well maybe you need another vacation. But that's what some people conclude. Some other people also conclude that there's no happiness, at least not for me, and that's where bitterness is. And the truth is, is that eternity is knocking at your door. When you, when you think about the best job and the best workout and the best figure of looks and the best bank account and the best spouse and the best everything else, and you do not find it fulfilling because it's not, eternity is knocking at your door. God is trying to wake you up to another life, to him flooding your life and bringing the deeper and true satisfaction. Here's a couple illustrations which play into Jesus's motives here in the text. Here's Jesus's satisfaction because it's true. Okay, so we have a book called Hebrews. If you know the book of the Bible called Hebrews, give me a big wave. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so the book of Hebrews says, here's Jesus' satisfaction, that you have a God who knows your pain deeply and in every way. Don't raise your hand to this. Ever been betrayed? God knows it. Ever experienced great loss? God knows it. Ever been pressed to the point where your body physiologically can't take it anymore? Jesus bled out. God knows it. 
In other words, the unique thing about the gospel is that our God, our God, our God, our God knows everything intimately about the entire human experiences and has chosen to save us from it and work miraculously in it because he loves you. Hebrews, book of Hebrews. You have a God who knows your pain deeply in every way. Book of Philippians. Okay, book of Philippians, chapter two. Jesus lost his glory and privilege and went to the cross because he loves you. He lost his glory. He stepped out of heaven. He fit himself into a human body. He limited his humanity to walk around like you. And, he, and, and, so, and so he had to continually limit his glory. Some of you have heard me teach on this, but I'll repeat it. He had to limit his glory. Otherwise, they would not have put him on the cross. He has to, he has, if he actually shows who he is, he shows his cards. They're not putting him on the cross. They have no power against that. Philippians chapter two, Jesus lost his glory and privilege, went to the cross for you. Romans, Romans, the whole book. Okay, okay, so the book of Romans, Christ's righteousness, chapter three, Christ's righteousness can be and is imparted to you as a Christ follower. Everything right with Jesus Christ is actually now released inside your soul. Yeah. That's incredible. God's soul and spirit imparted in you. Another way theologically of understanding this is that you have been taken out of darkness into light, the gospel says in Peter, but you're actually placed in the Trinity so big, you're placed inside the Trinity in that sense. It's an incredible concept. Galatians, okay, Galatians, the book of Galatians, chapter five, but the whole book of Galatians. Again, we're talking about Jesus' satisfaction because it's true. Freedom in Jesus Christ will cause you to flourish and bloom like incredible fruit. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians. Okay, so Second Corinthians, all of your weaknesses, and you have them, and I have them, are transformed in Jesus Christ. All of them, all of them. Ephesians, your identity, right? Chapter one. Your identity, chapter two. Your identity, chapter three. Okay, Ephesians, Ephesians. Your identity is not in sex. Your sexual orientation, your sexual confusions, any, it has nothing to do with it. Your identity is in the rock-solid heart of God in Jesus Christ. That's your identity. You are immovable. You are fixed on a solid place. You are on a solid rock and the sand will have its storm. The rock will have its storm. The sand will wash away. The rock will still stand. You want to be on the sand? You want to be on the rock? In this context here, Jesus' time, he was already born, so that was fulfilled. In this context here, he was already baptized, but it was not time for his miracles, but he did a miracle out of love. It was not time for him training of the 12, but he did it out of love. It was not time for his teaching, but he did it out of love. It was not time for his releasing, but he did it out of love. It was not time for his fulfilling, but he did it out of love. It was not time for his suffering, which happened on a cross, but he did this out of love. It was not his time for exalting, but he did it out of love. It was his time for saving, caring, and restoring. And he does it out of?
That's why we gave the title, Jesus at the Center. It's so fascinating. I've been loving sharing this. You're going to love it too. Just the duality of these circles. There is one circle where you are at the center of your life. And there's another circle where Jesus Christ is at the center of his life. And there's not a third one. That's what man tries to do, and they lose. So I'm going to pray right now. I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants to do, but I'm going to pray. I think some of you have to place Jesus Christ at the center of your life. I don't know what the circumstances are. I don't know how much church you have in your background. And how much you've been listening to Pastor Rick Soto preach. God bless you for doing that. You have to put Jesus Christ in your life. Some of you need to come home. Some of you need a fresh start. Some of you actually need to learn how to be happy and celebrate in ways that Jesus did here. We just blew minds. He just needs to blow your mind. Some of you need to place Jesus in your center of your life just so he can blow your mind and you can give him glory and praise. So pray with me. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray now over your church that is gathered here. I pray over every single heart and soul, God. Such beautiful people. God, but you know what they carry in their private moments. You know what they're challenged by. And so, God, I now pray that they would know you and that Jesus Christ would truly be the center of their life. And if that's you here, as I pray, and you need to place Jesus Christ at the center of your life, I want you to boldly raise your hand right now, right where you're sitting. You need to place Jesus Christ at the center of your life, then raise your hand right now, right where it's at. I want my prayer team to come forward, please. Thank you guys for raising your hand. Go and put them down. Go and put your hands down. And so I pray over these that raise your hand, Lord God, and I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would invade them now and be baptizing them and be speaking to them, Lord God. Give them even right now words of praise. God, give them, give them words of happiness. Give them words of hope. God, these people need hope. Your church needs hope. And so release unto them hope. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.